You are listening to the Practice Growth Podcast with Sean Terrell. Welcome to the Practice Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Terrell, and very excited about this week's discussion and our guest, Brian Hanks. Brian is a dental transitions expert and has been involved in hundreds of dental transitions in all 50 states. By trade, he is an accountant, a certified financial planner, and holds an MBA. He's also an author and has published to date three books. Brian, welcome to the Practice Growth Podcast, and thank you for being a guest with us today. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to another advisor, someone that understands finances. So if we start talking about EBITDA and getting really nerdy, uh, we'll have to both rein it in. You have my word. You have my word. So uh, you have a very strong resume. I just mentioned the highlights in the introduction there. But uh, just to give it a little bit more context, in your words, could you maybe fill in some of the gaps and shade in some of the gray on kind of how you reached this current point of your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a reformed Wall Street guy. I was working in New York at a big uh, company everyone has heard of, um, thinking that I was at the pinnacle and absolutely just hated it. Um, I loved the world of finance. I loved helping clients and I just couldn't stand the culture, uh, the backstabbing, the ethics that I saw around me. So I went and uh, took a job at a dental CPA and financial advisory firm. And that's how I got into dentistry. Uh, but at the time, I was just doing taxes and financial planning and kind of doing that bit. And I, as the junior guy on the team, got assigned all the younger clients, right? Guys that were associates somewhere, they're dental students, they're thinking about the next steps in their career, a lot of whom were looking at practices to buy. And I, by default, just ended up helping a lot of these people. But Sean, I don't know, you've written a book. Um, at the time, I was thinking to myself, man, I'm so lazy. I don't want to answer the same question over and over and over. And so I would uh, write blog posts and send, <laughs> send them to people. You know, how do I know this is good practice? Well, here's seven things to look for. You know, read this article and then let's talk. And after a while, I had enough blog posts. I thought I could turn this into a book. I did. And the book has turned into a career where I'm able to, um, you know, help a lot of dentists in transition. And it's uh, incredibly rewarding. I can leave the investments and the taxes to the smart people like you and just focus on transitions. And it's a great place to be. So you've gone all in on the buy side of dental transitions. And that's, uh, in my experience, a little bit underrepresented in the marketplace, right. and which is a problem in and of itself. But then you're also talking about the buyers tend to be the younger dentists who just don't have that much experience in the business of dentistry at all yet, just because of their age. So uh, maybe just for some background, what helped you go all in there? Two things. The first was by default, like I said, I was working with the younger dentist, the buyers anyway. And so that was the side that I kind of ended up focusing on and learning the most about just initially in the industry. Uh, but as I was doing that, I kept interacting with bankers, brokers, attorneys, you know, people in the transitions industry that uh, reminded me so much of my time on Wall Street, where it was, okay, how are they going to stab me in the back this week? Or, all right, on this phone call, how are they going to try to screw me over? And I remember thinking to myself, holy crap, Like I'm an experienced uh, professional. I, I know how to do this. I know how valuations work. I know how the industry works. I know how banks work. I know all of these things. And I'm having trouble navigating these waters. How much harder mm. must it be for these buyers who have invested an enormous amount of time, energy, and money in dental school and zero in kind of the business world. And uh, I just kind of saw it as, a, as an open niche uh, and almost like a calling where I could, I could um, 
do a lot of good work for people that need the help and uh, and help them with one of the most consequential decisions they're going to make in their career um, next to whether or not you get married or whether or not you have kids and where you live buying the decision on a buying a practice and which practice to buy is huge it's life-changing and it's it's really rewarding to be able to be a part of that process so rather than go chapter by chapter through the book or rather than by walk through uh, by walking through the entire process which i think is just too long for a podcast I've recently read the book. Uh, I think I mentioned I really enjoyed it. I can't remember if I mentioned that before or after we hit record. So I'll say it for the record again, just in case. Very nice. Uh, it's 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 really the, the the soup to nuts version on everything that you should do, and it's perfectly titled "How to Buy a Dental Practice." But what I think would be most interesting and most helpful for the podcast today would just to be. Uh, for me to kind of ask you questions around what I found to be the most 10 or 15 interesting or most sure. valuable nuggets within the book. So uh, sure. if you're good with that approach, uh, that's kind of what we'll we'll do today. Fire away. Let's do it. So you mentioned right at the outset of the book, there's five things that a buyer sort of has to have in order before they really even get into evaluating and looking for uh, a dental practice to buy. Could you start there and kind of outline those five things? Yeah, I'll start um, hardest to easiest. Okay. So you need five things to buy a practice. The hardest, the most difficult for people to do is you need some cash. Um, Now, the reason you need some cash is you you need to show a bank that you can be financially responsible. And, you know, we're sitting and we're recording in 2021. We're, we're post-COVID ostensibly, maybe. <laughs> and, you know, 2020 was a good reminder of why you need an emergency fund, why you need some extra cash on hand in case the worst happens. So um, the, the rule of thumb is 10% of the purchase price or $50,000, whichever is smaller. Mm-hmm. Or excuse me, whichever is, uh, is that right? Bigger, smaller. Anyway, um, you need either 50K or 10%. So if, if the purchase price is 400 grand, you can get away with $40,000 in cash in the bank. Uh, if the purchase price is a million dollars, most banks will say, all right, Sean, you got 50K in the bank. You're probably okay. Uh, and there's there's a little bit of wiggle room around that, but that tends to be the toughest one for people because they got student loans and you know they put life on hold while they're in school. And there's a lot of reasons to spend money. Saving up $50,000 in cash can be kind of hard. So that's the trickiest. Okay. And maybe to your but a little bit finer point on that. It's it's not necessarily that you need to have a ton of money down or any money down in a lot of right. situations in 2021. It's more about demonstrating or signaling to the bank that you're someone that can actually uh, save more than you spend for a, uh, an extended yep. period of time. Correct. Yeah, great clarifying comment. It is not a down payment. You're not actually physically handing that money over to the bank. That money is going to stay in your account the day before and the day after you close on your practice. Uh, but that money needs to be there for an emergency and to demonstrate to the bank exactly. So, what's, yeah, what's yeah, next in the in the in the five? So there's the, the first next one. most difficult for people is a production history that demonstrates you can do about eighty percent of whatever a seller was doing. All right. Uh, so let's take for example a, a practice a general GP bread and butter practice collecting exactly a million dollars with your quintessential you know roughly twenty five percent of that's coming from hygiene. Right, so that means the doctor, the seller in this case, is producing seven fifty, and you as the buyer need to be able to show you can do about the rule of thumb is eighty percent of whatever a seller could do. So in this case, six hundred grand, right? Eighty percent of seven fifty. Um, yep. so that that can be hard if you're going for a big practice, 
and there are some um, some very uh, just sane rules around that. If the, if the doctor did half their production in implants and you don't do implants, well, guess what? No loan for you, right? But <laughs> you know, outside of uh, kind of some of those special circumstances, eighty percent of whatever seller could do in production tends to be the next most difficult. But it's it's for a good reason. Okay, so production history, cash. What's next? Um, uh, you need about uh, well, so you need a credit score of 680 or above. And this is a uh, PASCO. 681 tends to get, uh, with most banks, the same interest rate that an 800 plus credit score is going to get. Okay, So that's number three. Number four would be similar, but you need a clean credit history, which is different than your score. Um, and in 98% of cases with dentists, never a big deal. Uh, usually it's a bankruptcy or short sale uh, on a property that tends to be an issue. And uh, as long as that is not true for you, check the box and move on. And then um, the easiest, I say this is the easiest, it's the easiest for about uh, 95% of the dentists out there is you need about a year's worth of experience after your education, as, uh, assuming a few things, okay? Um, for most people, the bigger problem is waiting too long to buy a practice. So that's mm -hmm. why I say the easiest is a year's worth of experience. Most people, it's three, four, seven years after they graduated, finished residency, whatever it was, and now they're sick of the job they have and they're looking for a practice to buy. There are a few gunners out there that are D4s and they're just, you know, chomping at the bit to buy that practice. Uh, to them, I say, uh, you hope you're buying from your uncle or uh, be ready to wait a year because, mm -hmm. um, you know, you just need some time to build up your hand speed, to have some cash, all those things. So not to dive too deep into lending because we might circle around uh, to it. A little bit later, but one interesting nugget that just popped up that I thought of that I didn't have on my list was when buying a practice, it's actually less about the personal credit history of the buying dentist than it is about something else. Maybe just hit on that briefly. Yeah, it's 60-40, right? So if I'm a bank underwriter, 60% of my decision is based on the practice. Hmm. You know, the fundamental cash flow of the practice is it stable. Are the you know are they spending a lot on on staff but not enough on advertising whatever it is sixty percent of the decision is the practice forty percent yeah is you Sean or uh, you know the dentist buyer over there who you know she has uh, a low credit score or high credit score or something like that so it's uh, it's both but it's more heavily weighted towards the practice and, and think about it it makes sense if if I'm a bank I'm lending one, more than more than a hundred percent of the purchase price of the practice with no collateral besides a, your diploma on the wall. Right. Yeah. No other industry has anything like this. If you want to go buy a plumbing business, you got to have a down payment. You're going to, you know, you're going to start some other business or something. No bank is going to give you hundred percent of the purchase price plus some working capital just because you went to school. Yeah. So the hundred percent lending is just uh, a lot of uh, based on the perceived stability of the profession of in the business of dentistry. So I guess it, it only makes sense that a big part of the lending process is the evaluation of the actual practice and how stable it is. Interesting. Yeah, so a pitfall here would be uh, some buyers will come to me and they'll say, Hey, Brian, I, I didn't get a hundred percent. You know, you told me I get a hundred and I didn't get a hundred. We, we dive in and find out they're trying to buy a crappy practice. Right? <laughs> they're trying to buy some piece of junk. They're going to fix it up and, and flip it or, or fix it up and grow it from 300 a year in collections to 1.3. Well, guess what? The the 100%, uh, you know, that 60-40 decision, 60% of the practice, well, the practice has to be solid to get 100% mm -hmm. financing. So anyway. So if you don't get it, that might be a signal. Yeah. To, to get... <laughs> well, the good news <laughs> is it's probably not you, right? It's probably the <laughs> practice. So yeah. 
So speaking of finding and identifying a, a practice to buy, one thing that, and this will be a common theme, I found interesting was that most people's inclination is probably to look for dental practice brokers and the listings that they have of yeah. practices for sale. You indicate that your belief is that's actually a small amount of the best options available for purchase. Uh, please expand. Yeah, uh, I would call this the biggest mistake that buyers make in the process of buying a practice. It's wow. just assuming that once they're ready to buy a practice, they can go find one tomorrow, or if not tomorrow, for sure by Friday. I mean, <laughs> I'm ready to buy a practice now. What's the deal? Like, what What the heck? Um, I'll tell you, uh, very briefly, I'll tell you why that is. And it's, you um, come by it honestly if you're a dentist in this mindset, right? Um, it's a setup in a sense, because your career is this very defined treadmill. Okay, biology undergrad, take the debt, apply to schools, get into the, decide on a GPR, AGD is like the most consequential decision you've had to date. And then you're ready. Okay, I'm going to go associate. You have an argument with your boss and you're ready for the next step in your career. And everything to this point has been this very defined set of treadmill steps. And, and suddenly you look around and you're like, okay, who's the person that helps me find the practice? Hmm. And the answer is, well, brokers kind of do that, uh, but there is nobody, right? There is no MLS, you know, central database of practices for sale. And um, so you asked the question, well, why not? Why wouldn't you use a broker? Well, before I get too far afield, you should. You should use your broker in whatever area, right? If I'm buying a practice next to Sean in Des Moines, Iowa, I am going to Google Des Moines, Iowa dental practice broker, and I'm going to see who the main brokers are, and I'm going to create a relationship with those people, get on their mailing lists, fill out their NDAs, and show them that I'm a buyer that's ready to buy. But that should only be 20% of my time. The other 80% needs to be net building a network of gray-haired dentists in an area that I want to buy in that know that I'm looking, who know, like, and trust me, and that know that if they wanted to sell, that I'm a possibility. But that takes a lot of work and it's hard to do. And you know, the logic here is irrefutable. All right, Sean, let's say you own a solid practice, uh, I don't know, collecting 800 plus, well-managed overhead, decent location, the equipment isn't crappy, you don't have purple carpet, right? This is a, a good practice for sale. And you know that you live in a desirable area. Um, your choice as a seller is, well, I can go hire a broker it's going to charge me 10% of the purchase price, or I could try to sell this myself. Hmm. So a disproportionate number of crappy practices get listed with brokers because a disproportionate number of good practices never call the broker in the first place. They try to find the buyers themselves. So you want to be that buyer. You want to be the buyer that they think of when they're trying to sell the practice themselves. And that way you end up looking at through the gray hair dentist, through kind of the networking angle yeah. Uh, more of the good practices that quote unquote sell themselves. Exactly. Yep. Got it. Got it. How long should a dentist allow themselves to build up relationships with some of those, as you call them, gray haired dentists that are going to know about those deals that never make it to the broker website? So this is the backyard tree answer, right? That when's the best, best time to plant a tree in your backyard? Well, <laughs> the answer is 10 years ago. And the second best answer is today, right? And so... Um, same thing with a network. Uh, and by the way, network 
it has that dirty connotation of cocktail parties and business cards. That's not what I mean. What I mean is right. just a, a, a people that you know and who know you, who you have a good relationship with. That's all I mean. And, um, you know, I'd start in dental school if you're listening to this ahead that far in advance. If you're an associate, uh, start now and cast your net wide. You're not looking for godparents for your, for your kids here. You're looking for people that you can ask intelligent questions to, uh, create a, a decent relationship where you can, hey, how, what would you do with this? You know, let me send you this image. You know, tell me, how, you know, I want to extract this tooth, anything that I'm missing. You know, how did you get 600 Google reviews? That's amazing. You know, those types of conversations are going to yield the type of relationship where the dentist is going to trust you enough to say, hey, I heard you might be looking to buy. My buddy over here is looking to sell. You guys might have a conversation. What's uh, for a prospective buyer down the road that wants to start to build those relationships? What's a low hurdle ask of a, a gray haired dentist that they will say yes to? Like, is it a coffee? Is it, can I come shadow you for a day? What's the best way to get them to engage, which doesn't sound like you're asking for marriage on the first date to use <laughs> a, a different analogy? No, yeah, yeah. I love that analogy. Um, <laughs> something flattering. Right? If you're a dentist, uh, you're the boss, your employees are complaining at you all day, patients in your chair don't want to see you, and, and you're 55, 60, 65 years old, and here comes this 32-year-old dentist, and they say, hey, Sean, I noticed uh, that your website is incredible. It's the best I've seen. Can I take you to lunch and find out you know, who you used and, and how you've been so successful in the area? Hmm. Right? You know, you're, you're paying for lunch, and you're going to tell me I'm doing awesome? Great, let's do it. And and in that conversation, hey, yeah, I'm a I'm a young guy. Someday I'd like to own in this area. If you know of anyone or you yourself are selling, I'd love to be considered. But you know, that's not why we're at lunch. My, I, I really just wanted to understand how you've been successful. That's how I would phrase it. There's so many professionals that a that a dentist will engage with, an owner dentist will engage with throughout their career. And at the beginning of the career, during the buying process, they'll have relationships already of other dental professionals, insurance people, uh, accounting people, I'm being really broad here, but but you get really specific in terms of who should actually help that potential owner dentist evaluate whether a practice is for them or a good deal or a good decision to buy. Uh, who are those two people and why is that important? The, the two people I say are on your team are the people that you pay directly. Okay, they're the people that ha have your best interests at heart, and you know they have your best interests at heart because you're cutting them a check. Uh, and that would be your accountant and your lawyer. And accountant is tricky. You gotta, I got to differentiate here. Um, I could be talking about your CPA that does your tax returns every year. That person might be able to help you with a practice transition. What I, what I really mean is a numbers-focused person uh, who understands accounting, who is dedicated to transitions that understands how dental practices change hands. Um, now, fair, just full disclosure, that, uh, that's me. That's I play the accountant role. The sure. other person is the lawyer of the two of us, by the way, if you can only afford one, you always afford the lawyer. Okay. <laughs> the lawyer is non-negotiable. Um, you got to pay a lawyer, but those are the two on your team. You know, you're going to have other people. There's going to be a broker involved. A banker is a must, you know, and arguably a banker could potentially be on your team, right? They're getting paid by you, but right, they have an incentive to have a big, as big a loan as possible. And so there's, there's a little bit of a misalignment of incentives there. Um, you know, seller, uh, life insurance, you know, they're, they're equipment reps and other people. Um, but I say the two people on your team, accountant, lawyer. 
one thing that really surprised me, again, common theme, uh, was the recommendation for a buyer to completely ignore a large percentage or a majority of the practices that are or will be for sale in the marketplace. Uh, that blew my hair back a little bit because that's a little bit counterintuitive. Like a dental practice is a dental practice, but you say no. No, no. Find a practice collecting 800 plus almost without exception. Now, that advice is true for 90% of the people 90% of the time, but counterintuitively, the practice you want to go find is probably the most expensive one you can afford. Hmm. Here's why. That practice, that expensive practice collecting eight, nine hundred, a million, million two, million five, whatever it is, is going to be much better run than the practice, the cheapo practice collecting 450, 500. And that well run practice is the product of decades of hard work, effort, elbow grease by a seller who knows a crap ton more about business than you do. You want to be the beneficiary of that knowledge. You want to take it on. And, and, and this is key for a lot of dentists who have the mentality of, good gosh, Sean, I got $450,000 in student loans. You're telling me to go borrow another million? I don't think so, right? I want to go buy, borrow another 300 and buy a small practice because that feels safer to me. And I'm here to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. It's more dangerous to buy that small practice. It's safer to go buy the big practice because that practice is going to put more money in your pocket immediately. And you'll get out from underneath all of your debts sooner with a well-run big practice that has good margins and good cash flow. In other words, it's putting a lot of money in your pocket every year. Higher profit for exactly. based on higher collections. Right. Uh, and yeah, that was uh, <laughs> the profit margin or the profitability of a practice. Uh, this was probably the thing that that caught me most off guard was that two practices can be valued the same based on their collections, but the profitability is an often overlooked, incredibly important variable in analyzing those two practices with the same amount of collections. Yeah, that two two practices both collecting a million. You know, one has overhead of sixty percent, meaning the doctor's keeping four hundred grand a year. The other has overhead of 20%, or excuse me, of 80%, meaning 20% is going to the doctor, 200K a year. In some markets, some brokers, some transitions professionals, they'll just look at collections and say, yeah, let's sell this baby for 850, 900. And you know, if you're looking at both of those and they're, they're both selling for 800, 850, whatever it is, you want the one that's putting more money in your pocket every year. Um, I'll tell you a very quick story. Three weeks ago, I was at a broker conference. Uh, they they let me in, <laughs> the buyer guy, right? Um, 60 brokers, now 59 brokers in a room plus me. And we went through a case study, right? They handed out 60 uh, packets of paper, gave us 15 minutes uh, and had us value the practice that was uh, you know contained in this little uh, stapled together packet of information. And the facts were the same. All 60 transitions professionals that value practices day in and day out for a living Right, we all have the same set of facts. Um, the range between valuations went anywhere from 1.2 million to five million dollars. Wow! And I was, <laughs> I was blown away. Now I knew there would be some variability, right? That valuations sure. are inherently a subjective process, but the range of, of variability was just stunning to me. And uh, anyway, so that being said, as a buyer, just have a basic knowledge. Maybe hire some help if you need it. 
and uh, just realize that um, it's not as precise a science as you might think going in. And did you give any numbers on profitability or profit margin versus overhead that that you stick to as well in terms of, I know you mentioned collections is sort of a, a floor of, of 800,000. What, what do you yeah. think of in terms of profit margin? Average profit margin for dental practices in the U.S. is 61.7%. Um, moves a little bit up and down based on size of practice and specialty, but good rule of thumb would just be, um, you know, as long as the overhead of the practice adjusted overhead, right? This is after I, I take out all the tax advantages and depreciation and owner's compensation and, and stuff that I talk about in the book. Uh, but after you do all that stuff, 65% or below, you're probably looking at an okay practice. You know, you start to get overhead over 70%. And now you're thinking to yourself, well, geez, I'm only keeping 30%. And if I'm an associate, I might make 35% of adjusted production. Why would I take on the additional risk and and headaches of ownership if I'm not making more than I would as an associate. So that's kind of the thought process. So once a buyer identifies a practice that they would like to buy and the negotiation eventually begins, or at least a letter of intent process starts, but you sort of narrow in on a number. Are there other things that can be negotiated in the sale or in the transition besides just that final sale price? Timing is a big one. You know, when makes the most sense. Buyers tend to have a little bit uh, less flexibility with timing. You know, they're giving notice at work and other things. Uh, so timing would be a big question. Uh, purchase of the accounts receivable, uh, you know, money that will be owed to the practice at the time of sale. Uh, that's always in addition to the purchase price and you can negotiate some discounts there. The asset allocation is just a fancy phrase to say how you break up the price for the IRS in different tax buckets. That matters a lot to the seller and it matters a little bit to the buyer. So there's some things you can negotiate there. Those tend to be some of the big ones. There are other things like, you know, is the seller going to work for you? And is there a um, earnest money? And, you know, are we buying the building or not? But um, those are going to be very deal specific. So we've talked about how it's not hard to secure lending in most instances to buy a, a dental practice, but for the buyer, there's some real advantage in borrowing money from the right type of institution. Huge. And uh, yeah, maybe just jump into that. So counterintuitively, a lot of buyers, um, well, you know, if you're a, a, um, a human being in the US, right, you, you have a bank account probably. And a lot of people have, <laughs> have had negative experiences with big banks, right? And so the, the, I see the thought process a lot of times is, well, I'm going to go borrow for my dental practice from the local credit union or the, the local bank down the street. Um, and that generally is a mistake. Not always. Sometimes can work out okay. Generally, what I say is uh, go uh, to a recognized dental lender, um, one of the big two, three in the country that work in all 50 states that have a dedicated underwriting team that does nothing but dental practices. You're going to get a lower interest rate. You're going to have a smoother process. Money is going to change hands when you're expecting it to. Uh, you're going to get the best deal, all those things. And um, when I, when folks hear that, they say, great, I'm going to go talk to six banks then. They mm. say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. You're going to shoot yourself in the foot because it's not a secret. First of all, all the bankers know and talk to each other. So the fact that you're talking to lenders is not a secret. Uh, and also they can pull your credit and they can see who else has pulled your credit. So when a banker, the salesperson sees that there are five other banks that are being considered, you know, human nature dictates that they're going to put less effort into your deal, right? They're not going to be as sharp with the pencil, give you the best interest rate, the best terms, lowest fees. 
and so what I say is find the two best banks in the country, talk to the two best bankers at those banks, and you'll be in great shape. And if you need those names, um, uh, that it moves and shifts sometimes, uh, you're wel- more than welcome to reach out to me, whether or not we're working together formally. I will make an introduction for anybody listening. So just to clarify, when when you narrow it down to two, now you've now each lender knows they have a 50-50 shot of getting yeah. that deal yeah. versus if they see five or six people that exactly. have pulled your credit as the buyer, right. they're going to know that they've got a 12 yeah. or a 15% chance of getting the deal. They're not going to work as hard to get get the business. Exactly. And, and why not one then? Let's pick the one best bank and the one best banker. That's in even the bankers admit, and, and I don't even have to have them with alcohol in them to admit it, <laughs> I say, um, that they, they are more aggressive when there is competition. So you mentioned one other thing in there, and that was find the best banker within that national mm. bank. Yeah. So I'll just give two names, Wells Fargo and B of A or Bank of America, which are two of the bigger dental lending ones out there. How do I find, if I'm in Iowa, how do I make sure that I find the best lender at those two banks, regardless of what state they happen to reside in? And is it possible for me to do that and work with uh, those point people on the lending side out of state? Lean on your team is the answer. Okay, Lean on your accountant and your lawyer. Uh, they will know who it is. The way that it works is most sales, and this is true of any sales organization, but if I call the Wells Fargo banker that has Iowa as the territory, my name is now tagged to that banker. And that banker will work the deal whether or not they're the best banker. Uh, so what you want to do is call the best banker in, in the country because they can work any deal anywhere. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you know, a big bank like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, I mean, they, they have 60, 70 bankers that work around the country in different territories. Just somebody, in dental, right? Just in dental, right? Somebody is banker number one and somebody is banker number 70. And, you know, how do you know you're not calling banker number 69 or 70 and, and you want to talk to banker number one or two, you know? So lean on your team, shoot me a note if you, if you need that name. Um, and it does, it makes a big difference and it can matter for you. It reminds me of uh, if you've ever walked into a car dealership before and you just happen to be walking it at the wrong time, you can end up talking to right. someone who's been in the car sales industry for 10 years or someone that's in their first week. And it tends to reveal itself pretty quickly, but <laughs> I, I digress. It's, I think that's maybe a similar analogy that, Very uh, true. to, to your, the situation you just laid out. Yep. Confidentiality is so important in dental transitions. And for that reason... You know, a seller might be reluctant to let a potential buyer be in their practice during normal business hours because that tips off the staff and just kind of lets the word get out that a sale is, you know, not maybe imminent, but it's coming sooner than later. Uh, how, how is that navigated and what's the best way to navigate that from the buyer's perspective? The buyer has a vested interest in meeting the staff and, and having everyone know about the transition as soon as possible. Um, the sellers are understandably nervous about doing that. Um, let me talk about most brokers will tell a seller not to breathe a word about the sale until money hits the bank account. Um, and they have some good sounding reasons that after you, you push a little bit, kind of fall apart. But that's the standard advice for sellers. My advice to buyers is try to push for um, some disclosure to the staff and the chance to meet the staff as early as possible 
mainly because a lot of what you're purchasing in a dental practice is goodwill, right? Is it's relationships, it's uh, knowledge, it's training, it's how good the staff is. And uh, you know, if you're buying, if you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on something, you ought to be able to assess it, right? <laughs> Not to mention the fact that they you you would like to avoid the situation where you show up on a Monday, keys in hand, saying, "Hey, I'm the new guy, I'm the new owner." And they're shocked, right? And the staff is going, who, what, how? And, you know, why didn't the guy tell me before? And, and you're dealing with that fallout for the first week when you're trying to run a practice for your first time. So um, now here's what actually happens in most deals. Um, sellers hold firm and they say, heck no, you know, you want to meet my staff. Uh, here's my middle finger, you know, take it or leave it. And um, so what I tell most buyers is the compromise that works for most sellers is, hey, after I have we've signed a letter of intent. And after I've secured lending and our lawyers are talking to each other and the lawyers both tell us that the deal looks like it's good to go. At that point, there is reasonable certainty, probably among the percentages of 99.9 that this deal is going to close. Let's talk to the staff at that point. You know, it could be four, six, eight weeks before the actual closing. That's the time to start talking to the staff and letting them know you're a good person. You're an awesome buyer. You can't wait to be their boss. You, you're not planning on changing everything in the practice. And they're going to uh, have a, a the, the normal freak out, but they're going to have it before you show up. And then you'll be ready to go on day one. We've covered so many things and uh, we could go on for a long time. I have so many more things uh, that I could ask about. But uh, the short answer is if you have any interest at all in what we've talked about today and uh, buying a dental practices in your future at some point, uh, spend the, I don't know, 15, 20 bucks, whatever it was on Amazon and, and buy how to buy a dental practice. There's just a wealth of information in there that will help you uh, navigate that process if you are going to be an owner doc. Uh, Brian, as we start to wrap up, is there anything that I haven't hit on today that you think is is important to to touch on before we wrap things up? No, I just appreciate the opportunity, Sean. Biggest mistake you can make as a buyer is waiting too long. So mm. if you've been out of school a year or two and ownership is in your future, um, just just pull the trigger. Um, you know whether it's my book or another resource, whatever it is you need to do to get comfortable, I would encourage you to move quickly. And I appreciate you mentioning the book. I would just mention if folks want uh, an author copy, like a, a a printed copy from the publisher, I'm happy to send them to them just for the cost of printing and shipping. Uh, if they go to dentalbuyeradvocates.com forward slash book, um, I think it's eight or nine bucks. I'll, I'll ship them and they can save a few bucks on Amazon. And is that the best way as well to get in touch with you and find your contact information? Yeah, is- dental, dentalbuyeradvocates.com. My email address, my cell phone's there. You're welcome to text, call, uh, email, whatever I can do to be helpful. I'd be honored to help you out. Wow. That is Brian Hanks, dental transition specialist and author of How to Buy a Dental Practice. Brian, thank you for sharing your wisdom, your time, and for being a guest on the Practice Growth Podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Practice Growth Podcast. For more information about ongoing financial planning for dentists, you can visit DentistExit.com. And there, you can find more information about us and our firm. You can sign up for our email newsletter. You can learn more about the Elements Financial Planning System, or you can schedule a phone call with Sean. That's me. As for the boring legal stuff... Terrell Advisors LLC is a registered investment advisor. The information presented should not be interpreted or construed as investment, legal, tax, financial planning, or wealth management advice. 
It does not substitute for personalized investment or financial planning from Terrell Advisors, LLC. This podcast conveys the views and opinions of Sean Terrell and his guests, and the information herein should not be considered a solicitation to engage in a particular investment or financial planning strategy. Information presented is for educational purposes only, and past performance is not indicative of future results.